can't remember when, what time everyone shows up on Wednesday night, but I think this is the punctual group. Yes, thank you for that. If they wander in, that's okay. I'll pray and we'll see what happens. Lord, we just thank you for, um, for your presence. Thank you for um, calling each of us to you. Lord, thank you for what you're doing throughout the course of this semester uh, through a variety of different vessels. And thank you, Lord, for the hunger and the desire of each one here to know you more, uh, to grow closer to you, and to become more deeply established uh, in the knowledge of God. We love you. Amen. Well, uh, my assigned topic for tonight is uh, first love. Um, And I know Ryan uh, and Paul have been... uh, presenting, and Ryan's talking about abiding next week, so this will be a good lead-in for that. I don't think you guys will have to run around the building for abiding, but I could be wrong. Um, so first love, and what I want to start off with is just kind of looking at our calling uh, as lovers of, of God, first and foremost, and then actually I want to take it in a little bit of a different direction, and I want to look at it in the context of relationship and I want to look at the relationship between Jesus, Peter, and John, and just make some observations there uh, as it pertains to love and being a lover. So Revelation 2.2, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from the heights of which you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So that's... Those are some pretty strong words, both affirming and uh, rebuking. And uh, I found it interesting, you know, here's a church that most of us would admire and aspire to be like. They were bearing up under suffering. They'd taken a stand for the gospel. They were obviously enduring some persecution. And they, have, they had done the things right. They'd tested the spirits. People had come in as false prophets and false apostles, and they'd recognize that by testing the spirits. These guys are doing a lot of things really well. And yet, Jesus harshly rebukes them. And uh, he threatens to come and remove their lampstand. So I just make a note, a personal remembrance that our labor, our endurance, our steadfastness in the face of wickedness mean nothing, nothing if they're not predicated by loving God. Nothing that we do if it does not flow out of the place of being a lover of God holds any water. The things that these guys were doing were so admirable if they're being done out of the place of love. However, Jesus rebukes them and he threatens to remove their lampstand. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, The lampstand in Revelation 1 is said to be the church. And he's he's got the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches, and then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So Jesus is threatening the church in Ephesus with the removal of their lampstand or their church from the city. That's incredible. I mean, if you think about it, here's a city, one of the biggest cities of the day. This is the church of Ephesus as a whole. It's, it's bigger than just one body of believers. But he's saying, you guys have done so many things well. You guys are you're taking a stand for the gospel, for my namesake. You're enduring. Your works are great. However, you've fallen from your first love. And because you've fallen from your first love and you're just doing all the actions, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to obliterate the church in Ephesus. I'm going to remove the lampstand. I would rather have no church in Ephesus than a church that is not first and foremost rooted and established as lovers of, of himself, as of God. That's incredible. I just, I look at that and that's really all you can say about it. That is so incredible that Jesus has no interest in the right programs, in the right committees, in the right suffering, missions, martyrdom, if it is not rooted and established in love. It's incredible. And terrifying, I guess, at the same time. It just puts such a weight um, of self-examination upon us in churches to say, are we... Are we rooted and established in love? Am I a lover of God first and foremost, or am I a worker for God? All the, all the works that they're doing are just, they're great. Um, they're grand undertakings, as long as they're flowing out of the primary call upon our lives, which is to love God. So keep the first commandment first. We are first and foremost to be lovers of God. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second command, love your neighbor as yourself. And we, there's a tendency now to really want to be a good lover of our neighbors. We want to love people. We want to be recognized as loving people and reach our community through our love. But if it's, again, not flowing out of our love of God, our love of neighbor will be impotent. And so it is essential that we first and foremost and almost utterly become lovers of God because from that place, it's impossible not to have overflow into loving our neighbors. If it's true, yeah? Also, our identity must be as lovers of God. You know, we're, we're all young and we're trying to become established and... Um, I know at least for me, as I tried to figure out who in the world I was, I had no clue. Um, I, was, I was looking for calling, you know, I thought I was going to go into ministry, and I thought it would look like this, and then I thought it was going in this direction, and then it didn't, and it went back in another direction, and I'm trying to define who on earth am I? Literally, who am I to be on this earth? It's my identity. I need to know this, God, this is kind of a big deal. Um, my security is rooted in who am I, God, in case you didn't know. Um, you know, and then you, maybe you are moving into a relationship and you're trying to define yourself by who you are in relationship. Am I a husband? Am I a dad? What am I? And trying to define ourselves is so difficult when we're trying to define ourselves by our calling or our role. 
And our calling is not our definition. We are not identified or defined by our calling. It's simply something we do. And it's really important because over the course of your life, you will change what you do and the role you play probably no less than 100 times. So you might start out as, I'm a missionary. And you go two years and God's like, you're going back to the U.S. and you're going to work. You're working in a coffee shop. And then you're working in a coffee shop for two years. And, well, now I'm a coffee shop entrepreneur. And you're doing this for a couple years. And now it's over to the restaurant industry. And now I'm a waiter. And now I'm moving over into, I'm going to finish my degree. And I'm going to grad school. So now I'm a student. I'm a master's student. And you're defining yourself differently every time. And if you do that... First of all, you're going to go through a lot of different outfits because you know that you cannot wear the same thing in a coffee shop as you can in a restaurant, as you can when you're getting your master's in college. You have to change your clothes. Especially if it's an intellectual program, your master's, you have to dress like you're smart. You just have to, and you guys know that. But the point is, if you're defining yourself and identifying by what you do, you will have to change who you are 100 plus times over the course of your life. Because you will in reality, it may not be coffee shop to restaurant to college. It will be, I'm single, I don't know anyone in this town, I'm just, you know, I'm having to move over here and I'm developing new friendships. And now I'm, I'm really cool and I'm here for a little while and then I meet someone and now I, my friends are, we're not hanging out anymore because now I'm, I, got a, I got a lady friend and, you know, now we're hanging out all the time and my friends abandoned me and your seasons of life change. You get married, life changes. You don't have the same types of friendships with your buddies that you did when you got married. If you guys, you guys already know this. Have any of you had a friend that got into a serious relationship and was like, peace, <laughs> I'll see you again at the wedding, and they're gone. Well, that's appropriate. They have to start to invest more time in the person they're going to spend the next 60 years with. If they don't, and they're still hanging out with you as much, you should talk to them about the health of their marriage or their relationship. When you get into a relationship like this and you get married, you don't have the freedoms of just being like, dude, it's 10 p.m., I'm going to B-dubs, and out the door you go. Now you have another person that you share life with that you're accountable to, and you, you're limited as to how you can function and interact with friends, and it's appropriate. Then you have kids. Good Lord. And then, you know, you move forward and they grow into a different phase of life. And then your kids move out of the house. And your kids move out of the house and now they're not around anymore. And if I was only a parent, now what am I? You know, if I identified myself as just dad, but I wasn't rooted and grounded and established in something that went beyond that, as valuable and beautiful as it is, when my kids are gone, I'm gone. If I'm only dad. Does that make sense? So we cannot make the mistake of identifying ourselves by our calling or by the role that we fill or by the season of life that we're in. When you're single, there's this huge temptation to run around and I'm, I'm in the singles group, you know, and I'm single and that's who I am and hear me roar. And it's like, well, if that's who you become because that's where you are, when you meet someone and you're excited about meeting someone, you're having to let an entire identity die because now you're feeling this progression that God's leading you into a relationship. You don't have to define yourself as single. 
You can just be single. Who you are is far more than your relational status. Amen? That's part of what's happening today in our country with the, the, the sexual um, war that's happening in our nation is because people are trying to define themselves by how they feel sexually. Good Lord, how debased have we become if our primary way of defining ourselves is by our sex and what we prefer? What we do is not who we are. Our calling, our role, our season does not define our identity. So, Charles, what does? You already know the answer, but our identity must be as lovers of God. So simple, but so difficult to practice, isn't it? Oh my goodness. I'll tell you my little, my little story. You guys have probably all heard this, but I don't care. It's worth telling again. Because every time I tell it, it reminds me, and it's worth it. Um, the year that Elisa was born was January 2010. So in 2009, I, had, uh, I felt like God was going to speak to me powerfully and like there's a powerful shift coming in my life. Because in 2007, December 6th, 2007, I had a dream, and in the dream, God spoke, and he said, two years in this dream, and it woke me up. It, I was shaking, and in the dream, it was so terrifying. It was like, thun- like literally, when you read in the Bible, it was like thunder. That's what it felt like in the dream. I didn't hear. I could feel two years. So I get up, and I write it down, and I'm like, oh, deliverance is at hand, you know, because I was in a season of life that I wasn't enjoying, and deliverance is at hand. Oh, glory to God. I can survive 24 months. Anybody can. And so the time's going by, the time's going by, and all of a sudden this is approaching. And Mary's pregnant, way pregnant, and uh, she was 35 weeks on December 6th. And so in November, Kansas City has their awakening start. And so I'm like, I have to go to this. I, something, I have to be there. Something's supposed to happen. I, I just, where else am I going to go? You know, there, there's nothing else going on around here, Lord. You're not really making it clear. So I, that's where I felt like I had to go, and she couldn't go. And so I had to go. By, I went by myself, but my dad decided he's going to come along with me and help me drive. So we get down there, and the first night is just mayhem. I mean, it was, there's, there's chaos. You were down there at the same time, and there's people everywhere, and you're just like, and I'm standing there, I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is cool, but there's nothing going on for me. I'm just like, this is weird. I mean, I had been to Bethel in 2008, so I wasn't offended by what was happening. I was just kind of an observer, but I was like, I, I'm feeling nothing. I'm not being convicted. There's nothing God's really dealing with me about. I, why in the world did I drive 14 hours to get here? This is ridiculous. So the next day, I get up early in the morning. I go into the prayer room. And um, I'm sitting there in the prayer room, and the set, (laughs) the the first set that I walked into was chaos again. There's people. It's like a party. It was like a frat party, and I've been to those, so that's what this was like in the prayer room. And it's just people are falling out, and like Mike Bickle even walks out on stage to make sure that what's happening is legit, you know, and and so I'm just kind of, I walked into this, and I'm seeing this happen. So I sit down, and I'm just, 
kind of sitting there hanging out. I'm like, this is just nuts. Well, all of a sudden the set ends and Misty Edwards' team comes on stage. But it's not her team, it's just Misty. And so I'm like, Lord, this is not right. I mean, you know, I'm down here for a big deal weekend. And you're not even going to put Misty on there with a team. She's just going to go solo. This is weak. So I'm having a little bit of my pity party here. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and she starts singing, and I forget what she was singing about. doesn't really matter. But um, just doing some solo stuff, and all of a sudden, the Lord goes, uh, son, thank you. And I'm like, this does not seem like it's going in the direction that I thought it would. Um, I was waiting for some kind of prophetic encounter. I wasn't quite sure. And he says, son, thank you. Um, Thank you for loving me, and thank you for believing me, even when no one else would. And so I sat there, and I, I just wept for like an hour and a half. I just, I just sobbed. <clears throat> but it, I didn't get over my frustration, you know, because it was like God shows up in an extraordinarily powerful way, and he says, thank you for loving me. And he's like, you're my son, and I love you, and thank you for loving me. And I'm just like... My, my identity's not changing. I'm still going back to the same circumstance I was in. I'm, nothing has changed. My role hasn't changed. My calling hasn't changed. My season hasn't changed. This is awful. And we're driving back, and, um, you know, I'm kind of telling my dad a little bit of my frustration, and uh, I'm listening to a sermon at the time, and he starts to talk about how we respond when God disappoints us. And he said, how we respond when God dis disappoints us is what defines us for the next 30 or 40 years. And he said, when you're hoping in a circumstance, or, and he's kind of reading my mail at this time, it's a CD that I'm listening to, if you're hoping for a circumstantial change and God disappoints, how you either draw into him as a lover or push away from him as a slave, defines your next 30 years. And a, a, a slave is looking to get reward, get something from a master for his work, but a son is just looking to be near his father despite the circumstance. And it was a very slow beginning for me because I was so resistant to it. But over the course of the next years, um, things started to shift for me, and I started to identify myself as a lover. I knew that I wanted to love God. Um, I'd had a, an experience where, over the course of a week, <laughs> the Lord asked me, like Solomon, he brings up that verse. You remember the verse he asked Solomon? Ask me anything, even up to my half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you? Or he asked Esther. And uh, remember Xerxes asked Esther, Esther, what would you have, um, even up to half my kingdom, and I'd give it to you. And So I, I get this question, and so I open the book of Esther, and I start studying Esther, and I'm like, why does God want me to read this book? I'm not understanding this. And about three days later, ask, the, ask of me anything, even up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. So I'm like, I start to go to the Bible again, and I'm like, you're not asking me this question like I'm supposed to answer. And now I start freaking out because it's like, what in the world do I ask for? And I started thinking about it this way. I wasn't really serious as though God might be asking me this, you know, at the time. 
So this is the second time you'd ask me. So now I'm like, what would I ask God? If, if I could ask God anything, and I knew I was going to get it, what would I ask him for? It started to change my prayer life drastically. It, may, it gave me a fear of the Lord because I'm like, holy cow. If I actually pray, believing that he's going to give it, what I ask for and what I pray for significantly changes. I'm not just rambling things because, okay, so here's my example. Do I ask God for revival? Well, I think so, but I'm not sure. What if now's not the time for revival? What if he's setting things in place where if he were to release revival today, we wouldn't be ready. It would sputter out and die after two years when he wanted to wait and give it to us in five to seven years when we're more prepared and we can sustain it till he comes back. God, I don't know what I should ask for. Should I ask for wisdom? Solomon asked for wisdom, but it didn't turn out for uh, him all that well in the end. You know, he kind of tanked at the end of his life. Bummer for wisdom. God, what am I supposed to... And so this is me for the next two days. I'm trying to figure out this question. Mostly I'm trying to figure out a safe answer so that I don't destroy my own life. And so I'm, I'm wrestling through this, and a third time I'm laying in bed one night, and God's like, ask the question again. Ask of me anything, even up to half my kingdom, and I will give it to you. And I'm like, what would you want me to ask for? And he's like, that's a cop-out. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, always, I always know the next answer. And then I remember, hey, there's a first commandment. Love the Lord your God. I'm assuming he had a reason for making it first. And so I'm just like, God, I want to love you as well as I can for the rest of my life. And this was in, I think, 2007 or 2008. And I was like, if I could have one thing, this is what it would be. And so then we had this moment where he shared some other um, stuff with me after that. But he just said, he's like, that's a good answer. And, um, and yet, I wasn't starting to define myself as a lover of God. I was in Kansas City uh, a couple years before this. We're having this prophetic um, meeting. And two of my good friends, I think you were on that trip too, and two of my friends, Adam Tuttle, in Ed Bordeaux, they're being prophesied over by these ladies. And Adam gets this word about um, fire starter. He's a fire starter. And wherever he goes, fires start. And, you know, these amazing things happen. And I'm like, oh, that's a good one. And we're all excited, you know. And, and Ed goes next. And there's this lady who's sitting behind us who's, like, drawing what these ladies are prophesying. And... Um, you know, now she's, Ed's being prayed over, and they're prophesying over him. They're like, you're a flamethrower. And this lady is sitting behind drawing pencil sketch of this guy, Ed, standing there with a flamethrower. He's still got it framed. It hangs in his house. Um, he's a flamethrower. So here's Adam and Ed. Adam's a fire starter. I'm a flamethrower. And I'm like, <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, I'm going for the nuclear weapon. I'm going to be the nuke dropper. You know, and, you know, you're thinking of all the... Because I'm defining myself by my effectiveness in ministry or how other people see me in, you know, whatever. And so it comes to my turn, and these ladies start to pray for me. And the first one starts in, you're like John, the beloved, the disciple Jesus loved, tender, 
And I'm just like, I'm going to drop this lady right now. <laughs> just whammo. And I'm so angry as I'm getting this word. And she's like, there's just a tenderness. You're going to be the one who identifies yourself as the one Jesus loves. You're going to be the one who knows he loves you. And for the whole of your life, you're going to be like John the Beloved. You're going to be so confident of his love. You're going to be so tender and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is not me, lady. I'm the nuclear weapon guy. I'm the flamethrower and the, you know, everything's burning. And, and yet, little did I know that when God often speaks to us, he's speaking a reality over us that we are not yet, but we will become because his word never returns void. He speaks and it creates. That's how the world came into being. So when he talks to us, it creates a reality for us that shapes us. It becomes who we are. So here we are in 2005, and I have this experience, and it was true over the next couple of years. I cried all the time, and, and then 2007, I have this experience with God where he's like, you know, what do you want, even up to half the kingdom? I want to love you, and this, and, and thank God I'm answering, and I answered the right answer, because uh, I don't know where we'd be otherwise, or where I'd be otherwise, but Lord, I want a Hummer. Uh, um, that, would, that, that was a bad one, but it did cross my mind, you know, I thought of a couple cars that I would thought about asking for. You'd sell them, you know, it's a good investment. Um, and, uh, and then this experience in 2009, this whole time, God is trying to change the way I identify myself, and I wasn't getting it. Slow to understand and comprehend. I'm in it, I'm answering the right questions, I'm interacting with God, he's explaining things to me, and yet I'm still not getting it. He is identifying me as one whom he loves and as a lover of him, and I'm still not getting it because I was so set in an understanding that our identity is what we do and our role that we fill in our successes, in how people view us, and what we are in our jobs, or in the community, or in our town, or in our family, or in our relationships. There are a gazillion ways that we try to identify ourselves that are wrong. The only way that we're meant to identify ourselves is how God sees us and how we see God. How we love God and how he loves us. That is our identity. That is the foundation, it's the bedrock of everything that we grow into in the kingdom. Now, we're going to talk about inheritance this semester. We're going to talk about sons and daughters who function in healing or in the prophetic or in a gazillion different facets. But as we're reading in Revelation 2, none of those manifestations of sonship matter if we are not first and foremost lovers of God. That's all that matters. Everything else is an overflow out of that place. Now, it becomes one of the most amazing things that when your circumstance doesn't change, and yet the way you view yourself and identify yourself does, because what you then realize is, I found joy in a circumstance that used to torment me because how I viewed myself and who I identified myself as changed. And I was no longer seeing myself as someone who was stuck in a position and needing to get out for joy, so much as I see myself as a lover of God who is successful in my identity to, to love the Lord my God.
you know, a lot of times, especially when we're, we're first trying to figure these things out, we look to our circumstances and we, we fault them for our dissatisfaction. And we want deliverance from a situation when God's wanting to deliver ourselves from our own mind and the way that we see ourselves and the way that we think. And often, if we'll stay where we are and let him bring about the change in the way that we think and the way that we see ourselves, we can find joy in that circumstance that once, once tormented us, once uh, just drove us to the, to the edge of our limits. Because when we identify ourselves primarily as lovers of God, and he speaks to us that you're loving me well, there's nothing left. There's no achievement left that matters. That is the supreme achievement that we can have in life on this side of eternity is that God would be satisfied with the way that we love him day after day after day after day. The works that we do, they're just fruit of our love. But if we lose the love and the works we do are a detriment to us and endanger us to having our lampstand removed. But as lovers, as genuine lovers of God, the natural overflow of that love is the expression of that love to others that reflects upon our Father. Think about it this way. Has any of you guys ever been in a relationship that you were really excited about this person? could have been a friendship. doesn't have to be dating or anything like this. It could be you made a friend that you're so excited about. And have you found yourself talking about this person to other people because you're so excited about them? Hey, I hung out with so-and-so today, and oh, it's just cool, you know, and they said this, and they said this, and they said this, and they talked about this, and whew, and your other friends are like, you have a man crush on that guy. That is just sick. you know, anybody, nobody, nobody's ever been, okay, one of you, Josh and Hannah, okay. But seriously, we get excited when we start to feel near to someone that we admire. And it, we express it. It's the natural overflow. You don't have to intentionally talk about your friend to your other friends when you're excited about this friend. It just happens. You can't help it. When, when we are excited about how God views us and he's telling us that you are doing well in your pursuit to love me, there's a natural flow of excitement and zeal that flows into the lives of others because of that that you cannot stop. If I'm miserable and I'm working really hard for God and I don't feel like he approves of me and I don't feel like he thinks I'm a good lover and I don't think of myself as a lover of God but I'm just trying to do all this stuff for him, how voluntarily am I going to express a desire for people to know the great God that I'm connected to if I don't feel that connected to him in the first place? It's forced how many of you guys have ever been in a forced evangelism situation before? Either the recipient or the reciprocator. It's tough. You're forcing yourself to express a fascination and a love for someone who you feel disconnected to. But when you identify yourself as a lover and you become aware that all the ways, look at the scripture and see what God says. This is how you should love me. And when you see yourself doing it and you can see your reflection in the definition of a lover of God, get excited. He's defining it so that you can be encouraged by his word. The word just isn't there to convict you. The word's there to encourage you as well. 
So when you start to define yourself as a lover and you look and you examine and you go, wow, I'm doing what he says to do. I must, I must be a good lover of God. And then the hyper-religious spirit comes in and, no, that's not humble. Pride, arrogant, no longer lover. And you, you spire yourself backwards, but you have to fight into the truth that says the word defines a lover of God as this. I'm doing those things. I must be doing a good job as a lover of God. And suddenly joy starts to come in where that religious performance has only ever held its territory. Then you can't, you can't help but express it. Who wouldn't want to introduce others to the one who loves them so well, and now you're finding out you can reciprocate that love, at least to some degree. It takes God to love God. We love because he first loved us. It's in the Bible. We love because he first loved us. We can't love God without him loving us, which means we will love God proportionately to how well we receive his love for us. If we love because he loved us, if we let him love us a little bit, we'll probably be able to love him back a little bit. But if we become really good at letting him love us, we're going to love him. There's a chipmunk in the church. It's right under Josh right now. It's, it's okay. It's just a chipmunk. I think he's over there. I mean, if you've got a shoe and you're fast, your call. So, huh? Oh, or capture it. He's headed for the door. Headed for the door. Or Jared. Are we recording? Okay. Um, back on track. So, <laughs> yeah, I was on a chipmunk trail. Thank you. Um, it seems selfish, greedy to want more of God's love. But if we look to the scripture, if we want to be better lovers of God, the only way that we can do that is by receiving and accepting more of his love. So most of us would rather try to love God more without needing him to love us more to do so. Because we don't want to be greedy and selfish and all those religious, you know, anti-evangelical things. But the reality is, the more that I'm willing to let God love me, the better I'm going to love him in return. And then the overflow of that, the better I'm going to love my neighbor as myself takes God to love God. So, how many of you guys find it really easy to just sit there or lay there and let God love on you? Nobody. None of us are probably, okay, it's, it's tough. It's, it, you're right. It is, it is a learned practice. You have to force yourself. It's part of the renewing of the mind you have to make yourself get good at letting him love you because often our natural response with an unrenewed mind is to try to, whoa, 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 that's enough. It's getting uncomfortable. Or I don't deserve this. Or if we do start to accept it, now we get excited and we want to go run off and do something rather than just sit until he's finished wanting just to be near us. Yeah? I used to have such a hard time with this. I just finally gave up, but it was out of frustration, um, not voluntarily. See, most of the good things that have happened in my life, God had to force. I didn't choose them voluntarily. I was too dumb. 
Um, and that's okay because he's willing to force his way on us. We just have to let him do what he wants rather than try to do it our way. So I would sit, and I remember sitting over here often, and the Lord would start to move, either moving me to repent and, and like go and acknowledge something that I had done. Maybe it wasn't even current. It was just a long time ago, and he was bringing something to memory, and I needed to apologize to someone. Or it could have been he was just wanting to stir and move on me and love and let me feel it. And I would get so uncomfortable, and I'd start tearing up, and I'd just like, I'd almost brace myself so that I wouldn't just let it, because I, I knew I was going to come undone. And um, eventually, because he's jealous, he circumstantially orchestrated my life so that I was so weak, I was so frustrated, I was so exhausted, I was so broken, that I couldn't stop him from doing what he wanted to do. Zero credit of this goes to me because I resisted it as long as I could. I finally just ran out of gas in resisting. But the Lord is a jealous God. However, we don't have to make him go take us all the way to the end of our rope. It's not the funnest way. You know, we can voluntarily say, God, I want to let you love me because I want to love you more. Help me do this. And when he starts to move, you just force yourself to sit and receive and accept as long as you can, as much as you can. And it's hard. And it may take some circumstance that stretch you and grind you and break you beyond what you'd be willing to accept of your own accord. He will often take us through difficulty and trial for the sake of causing us to be overwhelmed, that we might turn to him when we'd been walking on our own all along. Often, as Christians, we don't realize that we've been living independently under our own strength until God draws us near to himself through circumstance and we realize we've been distant from him for a long time. When we turn and find him there, he typically overwhelms us with his love and acceptance, forgiveness, beauty. There's a breaking. There's this often... Early on with one of these seasons, there's this amazing like nine months to a year period. You've been these people and you've known these people who they're walking around on clouds and everything's glorious and Jesus loves me and everything's okay and I don't care who knows about it. And they're like elf, you know, with Jesus and, you know, they're all over. And someone who's been through this before will go, learn to be steadfast when a time of testing comes. Because you're right. He's showing you how near he is. But he's also going to want to make you holy. And he's going to... And you're going to have to learn to do this voluntarily. I don't want to hear about that. We're in love. And, you know, that, that's them for this period. And all of a sudden, this time of trial comes. This time of testing where God's bringing about a new work in them. He's starting to transform them into the likeness and image of Christ. And they go, I'm in the desert and it's so dry and I'm dying. Where's the rain? God's so far from me. And that person that said, hey, learn to know you're close to God now so that when this next season comes, you know he's still there. They go running back to them. Why did you speak death over me? I told you this was never, you know, you guys, it's a little bit, it's true though. I've seen it probably 50 times. 
literally, 50 times or more. And often we'll, we start in this, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I'm in love, and we move into a state of independence again, where we feel so nice, but we're not developing that voluntary, I'm going back into the presence every single day. So that when the test comes, or you step into the desert season, you haven't developed that voluntary awareness to get back into the presence of God every single day, and pretty soon you're walking ahead, and now you're in the desert, and you can't see an oasis, and you're drying up, and you don't have a camel or a canteen, and you're in trouble. Because you didn't learn to find water even in the desert, because it's there. He's there. He's wanting us to learn that primarily, above everything else we do as Christians, the highest, greatest call is to enjoy God and have him enjoy us. In that early season, it's really easy to become convinced that God is here simply to make us feel good and that we don't learn to enjoy fellowship with him and get to know him. There's a lot more to knowing God than just feeling good. Okay, so God's jealousy <clears throat> will draw us back into him, even after one of these desert-type seasons. He will often lead us through a desert to bring us back to him at a place like the Red Sea, where we need to see him again, to know he's with us, to experience his deliverance. Now we're excited again. But the goal of God's jealous love isn't drawing us, uh, drawing us isn't to keep us in a place of constant disaster, but in a place of constant dependence nearness. We will often cry out to God for deliverance, and we get deliverance, and we step back into independence. The point of God taking us through a difficult time is not to keep us in a place of constant disaster, but in a place of constant dependence, so that when we're delivered, we stay near to him because we understand that when we walk with him, we are with the constant deliverer. We can be dependent on God and not be a disaster. Often the strongest people you see are the weakest and most dependent people upon God. They're simply not walking under their own strength anymore, but they're living entirely dependent upon him. Thus, his strength shines through in our utter weakness. So often when you look at people who are truly, they truly appear strong, it's very likely that they're the weakest, wimpiest, most dependent people because they've given up trying to do it on their own and they're just allowing God to be their strength and to take them through because the strength that we have within ourselves is limited, it's exhaustible, yet his is unending. So that's, that's just a side note. As you become more dependent upon God, other people will often see you as stronger than you know you truly are. You know you're truly dependent. They see something great because they're actually seeing a manifestation of Christ in you because you're allowing his strength to come through. The goal of God's love is to create a dependence upon his strength and a pleasure in being with him. Being pressed to walk near to him in a difficult time produces an awareness of his constant presence which creates true relationship as we go together in all our doings. So he's wanting to create an awareness in us that he is always with us. 
strengthening us, delivering us, loving us, accepting us, acting on our behalf in every and all situations. You ever been in a car with someone for a long trip? Driven across country, road trip? You ever road tripped with like one other person? Do you talk the whole time? No? You just drive together, not say anything? Just being together? Much of our relationship with God does not need us talking to him or him talking to us, and yet we're together. We're walking together. We're sharing time together. We're sharing life together. We are one with him. We are together, yet there may be no dialogue, and that's okay. He is no further away when, when we're in silence or when we're speaking or when he's speaking. He's no closer when he's speaking than when we're silent together. We are together at all times, and what he's trying to develop in us, often through difficulty or the demonstrations of his love, is an awareness that I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. I know at least early on, I would come to church services looking for a feeling to convince myself that God was near me, and I love these incredible encounters, but what I realized was God wasn't wanting to give me an encounter in these different places to be convinced that he was with me there, he was wanting me to understand that he was encountering me at all times, whether I was feeling it or not. There were some times where I was physically more aware of it than others, or emotionally more aware of it than others. But his goal is not to go, hey, if you go over here, you can have an encounter. If you sit from the third seat from the wall up in the front row, that's the encounter seat. So anytime you're up there, God just he smokes me and I'm on the ground. And, because we'll convince ourselves that that's true. But he's wanting to convince us that he's with us always, in and out of encounter, in and out of emotional up and down. He's with us always, even unto the ends of the earth. I want to take a few minutes, for some reason, I landed here today, and I want to share some of this, because how do we love? It's kind of a challenging question, isn't it? I mean, love is usually defined as a feeling. <clears throat> and it's not at all. Love is usually in spite of feelings. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, those are things that someone does in spite of how they're feeling or being treated. And we tend to define love by how we feel. So when God is making us feel nice, and he's blessing us, and hey, I just got a new job, or I got this new ride, or whatever. I feel loved by God, because he's making me feel good. But what about the moment where he disappoints me? Do I still get up to go be with him first thing the next day, when he disappointed me the day before? That's love. So I want to look at the relationship James, or James shared the similar relationship that John and Peter shared. But it's, it's not as well detailed as Peter's and John's, so we're going to leave James out, even though he was part of the clique. And yes, I use that intentionally. <clears throat> because Jesus had an intimate circle of three that were close, closer than the rest, and he didn't apologize for it. Interesting leadership strategy. Uh, particularly today when everything that most churches are trying to do is consensus-driven, and democratically oriented, you know, oriented, Jesus took on an approach 
of gathering together his most trusted advisors, investing in them, and allowing them to invest in the next generation. He didn't apologize for being closer friends with Peter, James, and John and letting them see things that none of the others got to see. It was just the way he led. He was the best leader that ever was. I'm trying to take notes. So Jesus, James, and P- Jesus, John, and Peter. We're going to leave James out if we can, but somebody may forget and just remind me. So Jesus, John, and Peter, and James were buddies. They were the closest. They got to do some cool stuff together. Um, James, John, and Peter, they were with him uh, when he prayed in the garden. They got to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there often when none of the other disciples weren't. Peter was the, the leader that Jesus set in place of the whole group, and he spent a significant amount of time with Jesus. John, we know, was the one who reclined upon the breast of Jesus. Now, this was more common in that culture than in ours, but it was still recognized by the other 11 as a sign of his favor because when they wanted to know who was going to betray him, they said, ask the guy over there. You know he's going to tell him he loves him the most. John was recognized as the one by the other 11 disciples that Jesus loved more than anyone else. It's amazing. Did he love him more than anyone else? No. But John was seemingly better at accepting it than anyone else. Jesus showed him his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. He shared these deep feelings. He chastised John's pursuit of being the greatest in Peter's self-exaltation of his commitment. Remember, John wants to know if if he can be the greatest, sit at his right, left hand, and, and they get rebuked over that or chastised gently, I would say. Peter... You know, he's telling everyone that, you know, even if everyone else falls away, I'm going to be there. And Jesus turns to me, he's like, eh, two times tomorrow. Bye, Pete. And, um, and then John gets rebuked. Um, the scripture says rebuked instead of chastised when he volunteered to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village that rejected the preaching of Christ in the kingdom. Do you remember this? He's like, hey, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and see him destroyed? And Jesus rebukes them, and then they left town. Um, I just love that story. <laughs> Peter, Peter tells Jesus, you're never going to be crucified. And Jesus turns, and we know the famous line, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, ouch. So they were both rebuked harshly, which is a sign of his caring, his love. He's chastised. Hebrews 12 talks about being chastised as a son. If you remember the cross, John was at the foot of the cross with Mary, but Peter ran away having denied Jesus. The, ones, the one difference I could find with John and Peter and the way they related to Jesus, John wanted to be great, just like Peter did. But John asked the Lord if he could be great and if he could sit at his right or left hand. John also reclined on Jesus' breast, which to me would demonstrate vulnerability and weakness or dependence. Peter, on the other hand, he took the lead and relied upon his strength, speaking of how even if everyone else fell away, I never will. He also tried to tell Jesus what he was going to do. And he spoke of his own greatness and commitment rather than asking the Lord if he could be great, if it would be granted to him. Those are two primary primary differences that I looked at.
When John and Peter felt abandoned, Peter ran away completely. Remember? You know? The great betrayal. You were one of them. You knew him. No, he denies Jesus three times. Runs away. John stayed at the cross, but ultimately walked away because he was with the rest of them fishing when Jesus came back to find them. So they, they ultimately all abandoned Jesus through this situation. But for the first time today, I was like, well, what about Jesus in this relational context? You know, we're looking at John and Peter and seeing how they did things right or wrong, but what about Jesus? I mean, if we're looking at perfect love, we should probably examine how he dealt with this relationship, right? So you remember that John and Peter both would have felt betrayed. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah who was coming to reign. He was going to move Israel back into their rightful place. And he was going to, you know, we want to be at your right and left hand when your kingdom comes. And they're thinking this is going to happen naturally. And when Jesus is crucified, they're disappointed. And when they were disappointed, Peter rejects him utterly. And John just kind of, he just kind of wanders back to his old life. But they were disappointed. They felt betrayed by Jesus. They felt like he had let them down. But Jesus, he was abandoned by his own friends, his closest friends, the guys he'd spent the most time with, the greatest investment. He shared the deepest secrets of his heart with these guys, and they abandoned him utterly. How did he respond? How would we respond when friends abandon us utterly? They, they reject us. They walk away from us. They break our trust. Some even betray us completely, leave us for others. When Jesus rose from the grave and the disciples went looking for him at the tomb, they were told that he already went ahead of you looking for you into Galilee. When Jesus rose from the grave, he went in pursuit of the ones who had betrayed him the most violently, the most painfully. And today I was just, I was wrecked by that. And I started thinking about how do I love God? I love God really well when things are going really well. And I love, I love loving God when things feel good and I'm in a great season. It's really easy to love God. But what's my response when disappointment comes? Do I still love loving God as much in disappointment or in frustration or in a circumstance that I'm miserable in as I do when everything's going well? Because if I don't love Him as well in disappointment, then I'm not in love with God. I'm in love with feeling good. And often, that is the limit to what we consider love, and it's not true love. Jesus went and sought out John and the rest to restore them. And particularly, we see his restoration of Peter in John 21. It's incredible. He even takes the time to restore his memories of the event by having a charcoal fire. Only other time in charcoal fire is when Peter abandoned and denied Jesus the night of his crucifixion. There was a charcoal fire burning. He was warming himself around it, and he denies Jesus. Well, when Jesus comes back, there's a charcoal fire on the beach, and Jesus asked Peter three times, the same number of times that he denied him, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? 
He wanted to restore not only Peter, but also Peter's memory of the event. And they, the, the sense that is most closely tied to memory is smell. And so Jesus wanted to leave a new imprint in Peter's memory with a charcoal fire in restoring even what he remembered connected to this experience of rejecting Jesus with, no, I love Jesus. I'm not a denier of Jesus. My memory will not betray me again. Jesus wanted even his memory restored so that he would know that forever he's a lover of Jesus. Jesus trusted his father's love for him through the separation that was assigned to him as he took on the sin of the whole world. I always look at Paul's statement about Israel. I wish that I myself were accursed for the sake of Israel. And I go, who is this guy? This is incredible. I wish I myself were accursed. Jesus was accursed for the sake of the whole world. He knew that his father's love for him would bring him through in spite of that separation that he would experience when he took on the sin of the whole world. Paul was demonstrating the same kind of confidence in the Father's love that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ, that he would be restored again. That's at least what I think. He knew, Jesus knew through the nearness and trust that's developed through love that his Father would not abandon him forever, but would raise him from the grave and establish him at his right hand forever and ever. Jesus' love produced trust in the Father in spite of circumstance, where John and Peter's love produced trust only as long as the circumstance felt good and was understandable. Love trusts in the Father, trusts the Father in and through every relationship and circumstances. And this is how we'll end. I'm going to, love is risky. If we want to truly love, it takes risk. Love will cause us to experience hurt and pain. Love will cause us to experience disappointment. Love will cause us to be abandoned and betrayed. Love is worth it. Because love isn't limited by our emotions or feelings. Because love holds no record of wrongs and keeps coming back until the betrayer has been restored. Love is what happens when our feelings are wounded. Love is what causes us to draw closer rather than push away. If love ceases when our feelings are hurt or we're disappointed, it really wasn't love. Love is a commitment to a person that's not limited by how they make us feel. That's so good. That it is. Not that, but that it is. That that's what love is. Think about it in two contexts. One, God loves us on the days that we don't love him very well. He loves us on the days where we disobey and reject his command to us. And not only does he love us, but he pursues us and draws near to us in spite of the fact that we may have rejected him the night before, as Peter did the night he was crucified. He demonstrates love by, regardless of how we behave or make him feel, he pursues us relentlessly in spite of it. Turn it the other way and say, how do I love God? 
or others when they've offended me or I've felt wronged or disappointed or abandoned or forsaken? Do I press nearer to them in those moments or do I allow my feelings to dictate the measure of my love? Love is a commitment to a person that's not limited by how they make us feel. Love is a commitment to a person's nearness and well-being that continues in spite of how they made us feel. Do you think, do you remember the scripture says that Jesus turned and he was looking at Peter when he betrayed him? He, he looked and he saw, do you think he felt no grief? That may have been his closest friend on the earth who utterly betrayed him in his most painful, grievous moment he was fully man that had to have hurt and yet upon the greatest betrayal he went in pursuit of Peter and Peter's restoration so in the moment of greatest betrayal Jesus chose nearness through pursuit of the individual that probably hurt him the most love never fails it never quits, it never gives up. We know the song, but do we know the experience? We have to let God love us this way for us to love him and others this way. Love causes us to run toward a person that's betrayed us rather than run from them. Love produces nearness throughout circumstance and relationship that causes trust to develop in our Father, regardless of our feelings. Most of us look to our feelings to tell us who we love. Jesus taught us that by choosing to love, our feelings follow suit. If we want to feel in love with someone... We have to choose to love them in spite of how they make us feel. And when we do that, our feelings will change toward them. Our heart will change toward them. And how they treat us will no longer affect how we feel toward them. That's how love is truly grown and developed. It's not dictated by our emotions, but the choice to act in love towards someone causes our emotions to change so that we feel affectionately toward them in spite of how they treat us. That's biblical love. So for us to become good lovers of God and good lovers of people, we have to allow him. He is a good lover of us, but we have to accept it to the fullest degree, as did John. John was recognized as the one that Jesus loved by everyone else. Jesus didn't love him anymore. He was just willing to take more of that love than any of the others. John got rebuked. John got chastised. But John didn't take that as rejection. He saw it as love. When John messed up, he probably thought, you know what? He still loves me. He's still close to me. He still wants to be my best friend. I don't need to be perfect. I don't need my behavior to affect how God loves me and feels about me. I'm going to continue drawing near to him, and as I draw near to him, my behavior will change and become more like him. But we first have to get good at letting him love us. And once we do that, 
we in turn will become good lovers of God and good lovers of others. Amen. So Father, we thank you that you, you do love us so well. You are our good shepherd, our good leader. Despite circumstance, despite season, through good, through bad, through hard, through easy, through joy, through pain, you have loved us so well. Father, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, and in spite of our pity, uh, you have continued to love us and jealously pursue us. So, Father, I ask that there would be a grace that would come upon us that would cause us to be good at receiving and accepting your good and perfect love. Break down walls of resistance, stubbornness, and pride that cause us to try to function and love without you first loving us. We want to be defined as the ones that Jesus loves. Know that for ourselves and let all the rest of the world see it in us. We love you. We love you. Amen.